Well, I do hear uh, different things really over and over over the course of the years as I uh, serve in ministry. And one of the things that I hear most often is a version of this statement. I don't have enough faith. Now, it might come in the context of a serious diagnosis at a doctor's office. It's like, I can't go through this. My faith isn't strong enough. Or it might come when you find out a spouse has been unfaithful or a a child is making a heartbreaking decision. And you just say, I can't do this. My faith is not up for this. Other times it comes differently. I've had some couples come to me and say, "Uh, Pastor, we think the Lord is calling us to serve as missionaries. And I gulp. And then they follow up by saying, it seems like the Lord has been building our faith up until this moment just for this thing. And I suppose then, if I'm honest, some of the time, uh, I view it as my job to try and put you in positions where you're going to need to trust Jesus. Maybe it's something like you hear an announcement that they need people who will work with children in New Life Kids. Or maybe it's a reminder that summer is coming and God's plan to reach your neighborhood is you. And you think, well, I don't know. I... I'm not really up for working with kids, or I'm not really sure my faith is strong enough to walk across the street and express love to my neighbor or to share the gospel with my neighbor, whatever the case may be. But the reality is it all comes down for us to the moment of faith. Are we going to trust God or are we not going to trust God? And so we run into that question as clearly as anywhere in the Bible this morning uh, in Matthew 17. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them uh, to Matthew 17 and we'll read together. But as you do, I want to remind you that we have just witnessed, as we uh, talked about last week, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, which in several regards is the high point in Jesus' ministry, where uh, he took Matthew, or he took uh, Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain, and he was transfigured or changed before them. And Moses and Elijah talks with them, a bright cloud came down and overshadowed them, and then um, the cloud went away, and they were gone, Jesus was there. And they began to make their way down the mountain. And as they made their way down the mountain, they came upon this crowd. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 14. So Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. 
And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, as I mentioned already, the Christian life is really a life of faith. Day by day, it's a life of faith. And like the disciples who failed here, Anytime we fail, it ultimately can be boiled down to a crisis of faith or a failure of faith. To say it another way, your lack of success at living the Christian life is really because you're operating independent of Jesus or you're failing to have faith. Now, we'll see that here in many different regards, but the first thing we notice is we notice this desperate father who comes to Jesus. And so the way that I picture this is that Jesus and Peter, James, and John are on their way down the mountain. I don't know if they were walking down this path or what they were doing, um, but off in the distance was a crowd of people, and they were... Um, milling around, looking agitated. Turns out it was the disciples and his father and his boy, and there was this stirring going on in the crowd. And apparently somebody noticed Jesus on his way down the mountain, and they pointed up to him. And this father, realizing nothing was happening in the group, ran up to Jesus, fell on his knees, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, sometimes falls into the water, or into the fire, and sometimes in the water. I mean, if you could imagine the anguish of this father not knowing when this would hit his son. We don't really know much else about him other than that he was under this kind of pressure. I imagine it's fair to presume that he was a Gentile and not part of the people of Israel because the mountain that Jesus ascended was in the far north near the center of pagan worship that had really been going on there for millennia. It was in that place that uh, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. They were in this pagan area When Jesus said that. And so that's where they were, and then they go up in this mountain, and then they come down, and my guess is they're still in that region, and this guy had been had had long been involved, likely, in the in the worship of pagan idols. Uh, Likely was distant from um, Jesus and the things of Jesus. And he's a desperate 
dad. And he's taken his son to doctors and they haven't found anything. And he's looked at specialists and they've gone everywhere they can for a cure. And then he heard about Jesus. He heard, there's this miracle worker who goes from place to place. And he goes from place to place and he heals people. And he's a great teacher and with just a word he can make the lame walk and the blind see. Maybe he's the answer. And so this father begins to look for Jesus. And finally he realizes, oh, he's up here. And he, and he comes and he, and he finds the group of Jesus' followers only to realize that Jesus has stepped out of the office. He's not there. He's up on the mountain. And his followers, like I hope you would be, if you're a follower of Jesus, are all too eager to say, oh, how can we help? And they step in and they try and help this man. This father had struggled for who knows how long to find a solution for his, his son and the disciples couldn't help. And that's the Father. And we, we probably should like stop for a minute and realize Jesus too has a context here. Things had been going on for Jesus as well. Because Jesus is now walking down the mountain away from the only moment in his life where things felt normal. Jesus on that mountain, you might say, had had a taste of home. The glory he experienced on the mountain was terrifying to his disciples, but normal for him. And so here was Jesus who had just been reminded, you might say, of the glory of His kingdom and what He was working to build in this world that would extend for eternity. And He comes down the mountain only to realize that there was a man who had a need and the disciples were unable to help him. I mean, the words of this father are so pathetic. He said, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. I mean, that's what Jesus hears after he's been just at, you might say, the, the pinnacle or the high point of his uh, last few years. I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Which makes me want to ask the question, should they have been able to heal him? Should they have known what to do in this situation so that they could have healed this boy and sent the father away rejoicing? And I, I think the answer is yes. Yes, they should have known what to do. In fact, Jesus had previously commissioned them to, to go out and to do this very thing. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, it says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. Now, I don't know what you think is wrong with this boy, but I'll tell you, it's covered in that. 
In other words, Jesus had previously given them the authority to do whatever they needed to do that this boy would in fact need. So then came the moment of truth. Jesus is away. He's not with them. And these nine disciples who follow Jesus fail to help the boy. They have their chance, you might say their moment in the sun, this opportunity to make a difference, and they can't. They fail. And I wonder, too, I mean, what what were they doing? What did it look like when they failed? Did they see this father and boy come and Maybe they saw an episode. I don't know. Maybe they laid their hands on the boy and said some words they'd heard Jesus say before. Surely that would work. Maybe they uttered some sort of exorcism chant that they'd heard the religious leaders of their day say before. Maybe they were too busy playing soccer to even notice the dad and the boy. I don't know. But whatever they did, at the end of the day, they look around at one another and say, what just happened? Nothing just happened. We don't know what they did. We don't know why they couldn't help. We just know that they didn't. I just have to stop and say, I mean, have you ever had that experience where you think you should have done better than you did? Where you think, I should have risen to the occasion. I should have been better. You try and you feel like a failure. You have an opportunity and you miss it. Or even more desperate, this, this is what happens to me, I'll say something spiritual at the time, And it just falls flat. It's like, that didn't seem to make any difference at all. Well, if you've had that experience, then you feel the problem. You have an idea what the issue is when these disciples really can't do anything for this desperate dad. As soon as they fail, and as soon as their failure is acknowledged then we see a disappointed Savior. And it really is a little bit unusual, it strikes me as a little bit unusual, to to have Jesus express His disappointment. You know, I don't really think of Jesus that way. But he was, verse 17, it says, Oh Jesus, or Jesus answered, Oh faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? (sighs) Bring him to me. I added the... (sighs) But you can probably imagine that was there, wasn't it? Because here, these disciples... I mean, who was going to carry this on when Jesus was gone? I mean, Jesus was gone for a short time here, and they couldn't do it. (sighs) Oh. What's going to happen when Jesus dies, is buried, rises again, and ascends into heaven? 
Are they going to be able to do it then? Who knows? That's the, that's the problem. That's what the pressure is, isn't it? And so J- Jesus responds with this disappointment. And when he does, he lumps, I, I think this is very interesting, he lumps his disciples, these nine anyway, in with the entire generation that is around them. And he accuses them of being unbelieving and corrupt. Now my first response is, all I did was just like miss on the cast the demon out of the boy thing. It don't make me unbelieving and corrupt like the whole generation. But he did. And I think it's interesting that he identifies them with the generation. And and my, my first thought is, that was who? That was an unbelieving generation. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had Pharisees. They had Sadducees. They had, they had a lot of folks who were missing the point. So that particular generation was bad, but not so much mine. Really? If you think about it, every generation in human history has had their thing, haven't they? Every generation in human history, whether you know American history or world history or ancient history, it doesn't matter because every generation along the way has expressed their unbelief and their corruption in different ways. Even if you go all the way back to the very first generation, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They were unbelieving and they corrupted the entire human race. Every generation is that way. But this is the first time when Jesus identifies the real issue, isn't it? He says, you are an unbelieving generation. The problem was, they had no faith. So what Jesus is putting his finger on here for for those disciples, along with the rest of the generation, is they do not believe. And he calls them corrupt. It is a perversion or a corruption of Christianity to think that you can live it without faith. And Jesus expresses again his exasperation. How long will I be with you? How long am I going to have to put up with you? Where does that exasperation come from? Again, I think it comes from the fact that Jesus had just been reminded on the mountain of how the world should be. And he came down from the mountain. It's, why, it's one of the reasons we call these mountaintop experiences, right? He, came, he was up on the mountain and that's how the world should be and he comes down from the mountain and finds that it's not that way. This broken little family and these unbelieving disciples reminded him of what life in this world is truly like. Yeah, he missed his home. Yes, he was looking forward to establishing his kingdom. But that's not the way it is down here. Because in that kingdom, not only will there be no sick children and broken families, there will be no impotence when it comes to spiritual things. And so, 
You can hear Jesus' frustration, can't you? <sighs> Bring him to me. <laughs> Reminds me of when I was a kid and I would do something. I'd try hard and it wouldn't work. And my boss or my dad or somebody come along and say, well, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And here Jesus essentially says that very thing. If you want something done right, you just got to do it yourself. So he says, bring him to me. What the disciples should have been able to do, Jesus did without any effort. What the father and the boy needed, Jesus did. This is not really that amazing, but I, I, I think it's important, and I want you to just sort of anchor that note, because, you know, we've seen this before. Jesus has healed the daughter of the Canaanite woman. He's healed children when their parents ask. He's healed servants when their masters ask. He's healed entire towns, cast out demons. I mean, you name it, Jesus has done it without effort. And, in fact, I think Matthew, the way he writes this, wants us to notice this was just no big deal. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Instantly. Effortlessly. It could not have gone any better than when Jesus did it. Here, as in all those other times, all of this seems effortless for Jesus. And I, I, I want to stop there and just pin that there because what the, boy, what the Father was asking uh, the disciples to do was something that Jesus would do. And for me, that connection is important. They, they weren't asking the disciples for a million dollars. They weren't asking the disciples, hey, why don't you hook me up with a better job? It was just this act of compassion, have mercy on us. And heal my son. And it's something that Jesus would do, and it's something the disciples, because of their lack of belief, were unable to do. Now, Jesus is going to explain this to us in a moment, but before we go there, uh, I just want to stop for a second and, um, and talk a little bit about what's going on with the boy. Because if you're like me, you would ask questions about what is going on with this little boy? Uh, he has apparently a medical condition where he has seizures. And, in fact, some translations translate this word epilepsy. Uh, it's the kind of thing where he'll be going along and occasionally he'll have a seizure and he'll fall into the fire or fall into the water and the father was upset, rightfully so. And the father approached the disciples, asking them to heal him. Okay? I brought them to your disciples. They could not heal him. So the, the Greek word there is for therapy or therapeutics. I wanted them to heal the boy. So they brought him to Jesus then. Jesus, bring him to me. Jesus, what does it say? Look down at what it says. Jesus rebuked the demon. And then it says, 
and the boy was healed. Well, was he healed of this physical malady, or was this really a, a deeper spiritual issue with a demon? I suppose the right answer is yes. Jesus may have seen something that we couldn't see or that the disciples couldn't see or that the Father couldn't even see. But again, the, the Greek word for the malady that the boy had was interesting. There was no word for epilepsy. That's kind of a modern word. But the, probably the closest English word would be lunacy or the boy was a lunatic. Now, you probably wouldn't call a little boy a lunatic normally. That would be really mean if you did that. But the idea of a lunatic is that it's got in there, if you think about the word, luna or lunar, which you would recognize as some sort of moon mission, right? It had to do with the moon. And what they're saying is this boy had some kind of affliction that they identified with the moon. Okay. Where did that come from? Well, I mentioned already that they, they lived up in the area of idol worship, and, and the most common thing worshipped in ancient times was really the sun, moon, and stars. The astrology was big back then, you might say, which perhaps opened the door for this evil spirit identified with the moon to come in. We don't know that, though. All we know is the boy had presented with symptoms of seizures that threw him into the fire and threw him into the water. And so was this spiritual or was it physical? Do we take this scenario, say there's this physical problem, and see behind every physical problem then some sort of demon? that there's a demon of cancer or there's a demon of the flu or there's a demon of the common cold or there's a demon of COVID. I hope you're thinking probably not. <laughs> yeah, I don't, think that, I don't think this gives us reason to do that. But also it ought to probably provide us a warning to say, you know, let's not be quite so smug in our modern evaluation of things where we think, Every single thing can be cured by science. Science will be the answer to every question. Because that's the temptation that we face. And so is this spiritual in nature or is it physical in nature? We don't really know. We know it's probably both. It presents here as both. And so among other things, I just wanted to put this little parenthesis in, and call for a little chronological humility. In other words, don't just look back and say, those, are, those ancients were so pathetic, they saw demons everywhere. But we know better. After all, it was Jesus who saw that as a demon, not the Father, not the disciples. So we just need to say, maybe we don't completely know if this physical thing is caused by a spiritual condition or the spiritual problem is related to this other physical thing. I think we're probably best off to say there is likely a connection, almost um, for sure, between one's spiritual health 
in one's physical health. And you are a whole person. This boy was a whole person, spiritual and physical. And so there is a need to be healthy in every sphere of life. But be that as it may, Jesus cast out the demon, the boy was healed instantly, both spiritual and physical. And then we come to Jesus giving us his commentary on the situation. So we see the desperate dad and we see the disappointed Savior first, and now we see Jesus' promise that's dynamite. His dynamite promise. I say it's a dynamite promise, probably a lot of dynamite to move a whole mountain. Okay? Verse 19 says the disciples came privately and they asked the question, why could we not cast it out? They did a debrief, an after-action review. What went wrong here? Why could we not cast this out? And Jesus gives this simple answer. Because of your little faith. Again, second time now, isn't it? He puts his finger on Faith is the issue. Faith is the issue. Because, he says, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus had named it earlier. Now he puts his finger on it again. Faith is the issue. To be a disciple of Jesus means you're going to need to trust Him. And he, Jesus says, that's the problem. There's a breakdown in faith. So if, if we're going to boil this away and say faith becomes the issue, what is faith? What are we talking about when we say you have to have faith? Well, the Bible does some level of uh, definition of it in Hebrews eleven six it says without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him you have to believe that that God exists and it rewards those who seek him but it doesn't really define it that great what it does do however is it does say that without faith it's impossible to please God which means that of all the things that need to happen in your life or my life for them to work spiritually, for us to get connected with God, the thing that must happen is we must have faith. Because without it, it's impossible for this relationship with God to work. It is so important, in fact, that elsewhere in the New Testament, it tells us that if you don't have sin... Or excuse me, if you don't have faith, you are sinning. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement. But it, Romans 14, 23 says that whoever doubts is condemned to feast or because eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, everything in your life that doesn't somehow connect to faith is a problem. But even that doesn't define it, right? So back to the question, what are we talking about when we're talking about faith? 
Is faith merely agreeing with God? Or is it merely giving mental assent to something that is true? This happens all the time. Say we, like last week, we just celebrated the resurrection. Resurrection's, resurrection's good. Okay? Celebrate the resurrection. Do I believe in the resurrection? You might ask that question. Believe. Do I have faith in the resurrection? What do I mean by that? Do I, mean the, do I believe the grave was empty? Okay, what do I mean by that question? Well, I, I, I think about it. Right? I, 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 I think. The, the eyewitness testimony is the grave was empty. The, the grave clothes were on one side, the headpiece on the other side. That's not how somebody would steal a body. Hmm, maybe the grave's empty. I think about the garrison of Roman soldiers that was out front that were paid off and circulated rumors so that um, they explained it another way. Hmm. I think about the transformation maybe of the disciples' lives so that they, instead of running when he was crucified, stood for him and launched the church. Why would they give their lives for uh, something that wasn't true? And then I think of the ascension of the church at the proclamation of the resurrection over and over and over. All of these things and more give us reason to say, yes, I am pretty sure the resurrection is true. I, I do agree with the historical truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Much like I would agree that historically the Declaration of Independence was signed. It was a historical thing. I believe it. Okay? That's probably still not what we're getting at. Or, or maybe even worse, when, when somebody's confronted or, or the gospel is presented and say, you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. You need to have faith in Jesus as your Savior. What do we mean by that? Well, you need to pray this prayer. And you're good. Is it really that quick? Is it really that transactional that you can agree that you need Jesus and you're good? Or must faith encompass a different level of response? This would be what I would, this would be how I would use faith or define faith in the instance we're talking about today. I would say faith is counting on the character, ability, and work of someone else. Faith is counting on the character, the ability, and the work of somewhere, someone else. So if you're going to, to, to trust or you're going to believe, it's got to be in someone or something. Because it just doesn't make any sense to say, oh, just have faith. Just have faith. Just what, think positive thoughts? Like that's going to change anything? That doesn't change anything. What changes something is somebody doing something. Now who's going to do that something? That something must, is either going to be done by you or it's going to be done, in this case, by Jesus. Are you going to trust Jesus to do it or are you going to trust yourself to do it? You've got to count on the character, ability, and work of someone else such that if they don't come through for you, you fail. So it's at the level of if the things about Jesus are not true, I lose. And so 
Faith is counting on the character, ability, and work of somebody else. It has an object. It isn't just have faith and everything will work out. You must have faith in something. And in our case, this is, what, this is what I, where I wanted you to put the pen earlier. In our case, Jesus easily cast out this demon. And he healed the boy just like that. The disciples couldn't do that. Had they had faith in Jesus, in other words, had they counted on Jesus being able to cast that out and done that whatever healing they needed to do for the boy in Jesus' name, in Jesus' place, in Jesus' stead, then the demon would have come out and the boy would have been healed. And we know that because when Jesus came... That's what he did. He cast out the demon and the boy was healed. This is most clear and really kind of puts it all together if you look at the book of Acts. So you have the Gospels, which is the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the next book in the New Testament is the book of Acts, which is really the story of these same disciples who here couldn't do anything, but later launched a church, later did miracles, later preached the gospel, later changed the world. Some, some describe them as people who turned the world upside down. Where did that come from? They couldn't do it here, but they could do it later. What was the difference? Well, in the book of Acts, time after time after time, it says, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Now, for instance, chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. What does that mean? That means your sins are not forgiven just by getting wet. Your sins are not forget, uh, forgiven just by doing some action. They're forgiven because we're counting on the character, power, and work of another, namely Jesus. That's why we do it in the name of Jesus. Because we're connecting what we're doing with the character, person, and work of Jesus. Or, chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Um, there's a beggar on the side of the road. He's asking for alms. Peter just says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What's he doing? He's not saying, you know what, I got this. You know, get up. It's no. What we're doing here is we are trusting that Jesus is enough for this man who's in the ditch. And they're connecting by faith with the risen Jesus, who then in turn heals this man. And their faith is identified by, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Now, some of you pray, right? And you pray... And you get to the end of your prayer, and you said, in Jesus' name, amen. And that's sort of the long version of ending the prayer where you could just say amen, right? That's not what you're doing there. What you're doing there is you are saying that my only recourse, my only hope that this prayer will count and be answered is by virtue of the character, power, and work of Jesus. You are connecting your prayer, your hope, with Jesus. That's what prayer does. Prayer connects the power of Jesus with the needs of people. 
your own or somebody else's. And so I hope that that helps. I hope that counting on the character, ability, and work of Jesus is what you can think of when you think of faith. Because faith requires that you trust someone else to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Those disciples didn't stand a chance of healing that boy on their own. And he wasn't healed. Because they didn't connect it by faith with Jesus. And that's what Jesus identified. What's the problem? You didn't have faith. But then, then we get to the crazy part of the verse, right? Jesus comes in with this dynamite promise. With only mustard seed faith, you can move this mountain and nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible for you. You move this mountain, nothing will be impossible for you. That sounds pretty good. Sign me up for that. Mountain moving, nothing being impossible, kind of like Superman. As Or I suppose you should probably just rein it in a little bit and realize that I can do all things with a verse taken out of context. Because really, that's what, that's what that is, isn't it? Just saying, I'm going to do whatever... I can, you know, want to do, and nothing's impossible for me. I heard it from Jesus himself. Well, the first thing I want you to notice here is that it is not about the amount of faith you have. See, that's, I think, where we, first of all, have the bigger problem is we usually think, I don't have enough faith. If I just had more faith, then I'd be all set. Jesus chose the very smallest thing he could think of to illustrate how much you actually need. You remember... Earlier, he told a parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Why do you pick mustard seed? Because it's so small, but then it grows into a great tree. If you only have a mustard seed amount, you're good to go. You're good to go. That's all you need. Why? Because it isn't about the amount. It's about the object of your faith. It's about what your faith is in. And so, that's important for us to think about a moment, too. Because you need faith to do the kinds of things Jesus would do. And that's what this promise is about. You don't need faith to do things that Jesus wouldn't do or wouldn't care about. Okay, let me illustrate this a little bit. Right? The the NBA playoffs are here. And I have always thought it would be really fun, and I think really I would feel so good about myself if I could dunk. If I could just dunk, I would be all set. And so, actually, it seems smaller, doesn't it? I mean, granted, it would take a lot for me to get up there and dunk, but it's smaller than moving a mountain. Even those of the most skeptical around here would agree with that. So surely, I can have faith that God will help me do that. Or, maybe you're kicking yourself you didn't buy a house, what, this time last year. Interest rates are up, and you, you want to have faith, nothing's impossible, right? That you can buy a house, zero down with a 2% mortgage. That's what you want to do. 
So, and nothing's impossible. So maybe you'll start praying about that. Is that what we're talking about here? Somehow, both of those things don't sit quite so great, do they? Like, hmm, that doesn't strike me as what we're talking about. So, some of the limits on this, I think, I mean, the, the picture of moving the mountain is a metaphor for even the biggest things are no obstacle to Jesus. But he's talking here in particular with this promise of doing what's impossible as if you run into something that you would find Jesus to be doing or you would expect Jesus to be doing, then you can trust him to do that for you. But if you're trusting him for dunking or ridiculous opportunities to buy houses or whatever, you're probably trusting him for something, or you're trusting. My guess is you're not trusting him, right? That's, and that's some of the difference, because he wouldn't be doing that. Why would you trust him for that? Because he's not going he, he, to be doing that. And so you're going to need to trust him for something that he would be doing. In other words, you've got to connect the faith to the object of the faith, namely Jesus. If you, if you cannot connect the faith to the object of faith, then this is, promise doesn't apply. And I do believe that Jesus intends us to live supernatural lives such that our union with Jesus means that he will do his work in this world through us. And that's what you trust him for, not for some other ridiculous or material or self-image improving thing. Namely, the things that Jesus once done, there is nothing that is impossible for him, and therefore, nothing is impossible for you if it falls under that umbrella. Which brings us really to the great question that we need to finish this message with, and that is, how do I build my faith? How do I get more faith, even just a mustard seed worth? Where does it come from? And I would say it's just not as complicated as you might imagine. When it comes to faith, there's no list of rules to memorize. You don't have to pay a certain amount in tithe in order to get God to somehow come alongside and help you. But let me say it as simply as I can. You cannot trust someone beyond what you know them. You can only trust someone as far as you know them. And so in order to trust someone you're going to have to get to know them. Namely, you're going to trust Jesus, you're going to have to get to know Jesus and what Jesus is about in the world. There is a difference between a wedding ceremony and the celebration of a 50-year anniversary. At the wedding, if you're old like me, you look at the bride and the groom and they look good, there's all kinds of energy and everyone's excited, but you just kind of think, you're going to hit some hard times. But at the 50th anniversary, you look at that couple and you say, you know what? You have hit those hard times. And there is, for all of the joy and energy at a wedding, there is a depth and a sobriety at a 50th anniversary that only comes from knowing someone that deeply for that long through time and experience. And that's what I want to encourage you to cultivate with Jesus. Get to know Him better. 
It's exactly what we see happening with the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. As the Gospel of Matthew goes on and on, they're making mistakes, they're seeing Jesus do miracles, they're asking him questions, they're figuring out Jesus so that they can trust him. And you've got to do the same thing. You've got to come to know Jesus, which means you have to spend time with him. You have to read about him, you have to pray, you have to meditate on his word, think about it from various angles. You've got to spend time in community around God's Word, getting to know Jesus. Because if you get to know Jesus, you can trust Him. And that's exactly what the Bible says. It tells us in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. What the Bible says about faith is that you're going to get it when you see the person of Jesus coming alive through the Word of Jesus. And so my encouragement to you this morning is that, first of all, faith is critical. You must have it. It's impossible to please God without it. For God to work in and through you, you're going to have to trust Him. And then I want to encourage you not to leave the growth and development of your faith to chance. Because the Lord loves you and He wants you to have just at least a mustard seed worth. And so again, the way to evaluate your faith is not how much you have, but how confident are you in the object of your faith. And you grow that confidence as you get to know Jesus better and better, which is my hope for you this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are um, we're humbled, first of all, that we can't do everything we need to do on our own. But then, Father, we are relieved, too, that we can't do everything we need to do on our own and that Jesus has done all that's necessary for us to be rightly related to you, to be forgiven, to be in included in the promise, to be brought into the family. Father, we are just so grateful for what you have done already through Jesus and what you will do as we continue to trust you and live and act as Jesus in this world. Would you help us, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.